Amen. We're in Judges chapter 7 tonight as we continue in the life of Gideon. Judges chapter 7. Uh, I, I tell you what, I, I, I love reading and studying about Gideon because Gideon was a man with, you, we, we use the terminology with feet of clay. He, was, he had some serious feet of clay. Uh, he had a, only a very short meteoric rise and, and then had some problems himself that we celebrate, we talk about this. Uh, but, but he did write here in this time during his time of getting uh, a victory over the Midianites. But we're just hours from the time that the battle is going to take place with Midian. The men would be readying themselves. They would be spending the last day or days with their family. Uh, when Gideon blew his trumpet, the Bible says that 32,000 people answered the call, showed up to fight, but they were still vastly outnumbered because the enemy had 135,000 soldiers. They had only 32, which gave them about a 4 to 1 odds uh, against them. This was daunting. It would put doubt in their minds. But God had done great victories before, and they were ready to see God do it again. Uh, now, we talked last time about the fleece that Gideon put out. After this fleece sign, the Bible says Gideon rose up early and pitched, or he stationed his army, uh, beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Gideon's army was on the hill, uh, and in the, the host of Midians was below him in that valley. Things were all set to battle against Midian now. They were outnumbered. Uh, by, like I said, four to one odds, but they were hoping that the Lord would uh, make good on his promise, as he always does, and give them the victory. In verse 2 uh, here, in fact, let's read some verses here. We'll start at verse 1. Uh, then Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned to the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down into the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, and the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people into the water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as the dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their, arms to, or their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men, but all the rest of the people bowed down their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, will I save you. Father, I pray again you'd bless the reading of your word. Help us now as we look at these passages and learn from them and apply them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, God came to Gideon. The people, you got to remember Gideon's mindset, Israel's mindset, Ready to fight. They're outnumbered four to one. But uh, some people will still fight with four to one odds. Maybe God will be kind to us and shine on us and we'll be able to win the battle. And God comes to Gideon with these words, the people that are with thee are too many for me. I got to think Gideon's 
cleaning out his ears, say, what, what exactly did you say, Lord? Too many? The people are too many? This would be a shock. He already was far outnumbered. He had a much smaller army. What Gideon needed was a bigger army, not a smaller army. Anybody would agree with that. Any military person would. God says you have too many. Now, what in the world do you do when God's orders make no sense? You ever had any of those in your life? Uh, the, maybe from the Word of God or from uh, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and His orders just make no sense. What do you do? We see what Gideon did. As surprised as he was at the orders to reduce his already way too small army, he did not hesitate to do what God commanded. He did not throw, his faith was growing, we can see. He didn't throw out a fleece this time. He immediately obeyed. As soon as he was told how to get rid of his vital soldiers, he immediately went to work. He's not arguing with God. Uh, he's not throwing a fleece out. He is, uh, and it's unexpected because of what we see beforehand. But Gideon has come to the point in his life here where he's going to obey God no matter what. And so he took God at his word. I can guess can only imagine how he might have been second-guessed by all his lieutenants as he had his strategy meeting. And uh, yeah, we got, uh, evidently, we have too many soldiers. <laughs> the enemy has 135,000. We have 32,000. We have too many. The Lord said so, and so, uh, but he obeyed. Would to God that we would be as quick today to obey him even when it doesn't make sense every time. All right. Tonight I want to look at the purpose of the reduction, the program for the reduction, and the promise in the reduction as we talk about the reduction of Gideon's army. The purpose, when God tells Gideon his army needed to be trimmed down, he also told him why. Look at what it says, verse 2, Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. So pride is the reason that God wanted to cut down the, the army of Gideon because nothing develops a nation's pride like military success. And pride is as much of an enemy to Israel as Midian is. Again, we saw that in the beginning when, when they begged God for a deliverer and God sent them a preacher uh, because their main problem was internal. It wasn't the Midianites, but it was the problem of idolatry and forsaking God. God is much more concerned about your problems in here than he is about your problems out there. And so God was more concerned about pride, or possibility of pride, than he was about Midian. But all Gideon could see was the Midianites. Only, he, he only had his enemy in his sights. That's all he could see. But God was more concerned about pride. One of the things that I believe here, I really believe that the victory over the Midianites, that would have been the easy part for God. Often the biggest obstacle to God doing a work is his children. Remember the book of Jonah? If you count the verses in the book of Jonah, there's 48 of them, the entire book. Do you know how many verses are dedicated to the wicked, rotten people of Nineveh getting right with God? That many. Four. There are 44 verses, God trying to get his servant in line, trying to kick his servant and make him do what he wants, what he needs him to do. And that's usually, I think, the situation when it comes to God doing a work. How much, I'm just going, the, today I was working through Acts 9 for Sunday night 
when uh, Saul's getting saved, but look at what God had to do to change the heart of Saul uh, and get him into the going the right direction. Because it's not hard for God to accomplish His will. It's not hard for God to defeat the Midianites. But it is hard sometimes for us to do the right thing. It's hard for Him to kick His servant into gear sometimes, which happened in the life of Jonah. I believe with all my heart it's not hard for God to save your neighbor. It's hard for Him to get you to tell your neighbor. You see the difference? It's not hard for God to fill this church. It's hard for God to get people in this church to care enough to go out and get them. You know what I'm saying? So God's children are often his hurdles to him getting his will done. It's not hard for God to bring revival to America. Who would agree with me? America needs revival. Amen? It's not hard for God to bring revival to America. It's hard for him to get his children to bend their knee, humble themselves forsake their wicked ways. So when God looks at this problem, the Midianites are not a fear. The Midianites don't concern him. It's Colossians 1.16, For by him were all things created. They're in heaven that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Midian doesn't scare God. He's much more concerned with the character of his people. What, well, while God was and is greatly concerned about pride, mankind generally is not concerned about pride. We have today what we call social media. Social media is a hotbed of pride. That's really what it's based on, is self-promotion. And uh, we're infested with it today, and God hates pride. He talked about two serious problems with pride here. In uh, verse 2, where he says that the, he talks about the emphasis of pride, they'll vaunt themselves, and the enmity of pride against me. Now, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy in the evil way. God hates pride. Did you ever notice God designs our bodies so that it's not that easy to pat ourselves on the back or to kick ourselves? <laughs> uh, he he uh, hates pride. We need to learn to praise him rather than lift ourselves up in pride. Look at the emphasis of pride. Vaunt themselves. This is always the problem with pride because pride is the exalting of self. Pride is a movie that plays self as the star. And pride makes self the hero of every episode. And pride, it will, pride is that horrible spiritual disease that we get and we don't realize we get it sometimes. Pride is, I don't, hate, don't want to be gross, but pride's kind of like body odor. You don't know you have it, but everybody around you knows you have it. You know, uh, Pride is, is, is a terrible thing and God hates pride. Pride is a perverted view of salvation. Israel needed to be, and they would be delivered by God from Midianite impression, uh, oppression, but Uh, If their army was not trimmed down, then God says they're in pride. They're going to think they did it and I didn't do it. So he said there's too many people here. This is the problem with man when it comes to the matter of salvation. You can do nothing to take yourself to heaven. You cannot save yourself. But yet we think we can. And salvation by grace is an assault on man's pride. Because we want to think we are good enough to earn our way there. Boy, I, I talk to more people that think that they are going to go to heaven because they are good people. And good people, well, the Bible tells you 
about that in Romans chapter 3 when he says there is none that is good. There's none good, none that doeth good, none righteous, no, not one. There will be no braggarts in heaven. That's why the Bible says, not of works lest any man should boast. Now, God didn't want any braggarts after the Midianites were defeated either. So pride has a perverted view of salvation. Pride also has a perverted view of service. God could beat the Midianites with or without Israel. You believe that? The Bible says in 1 Samuel 14, 6, there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God can take care of the Midianites. With their army, the soldiers might get puffed up. They might think that they had a part in winning this victory. Pride views our service, listen now, pride looks at our service as a necessity to God. God is so lucky to have me and all my talents and abilities. That's how pride looks at it. God really couldn't do it without me. And so pride thinks that God can't get along without our help. We better check that because we, we so easily can get caught up into thinking in the terms of pride. Truthfully, we can't get along without God's help. Psalm 127, 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman walketh but in vain. Can I tell you tonight that if we uh, try to do the work of this church in our own power, in our own pride, we will utterly fail. It can't be done apart from God. Okay, So we can't, pride forgets sometimes that service is our privilege and uh, God doesn't need us, but he gives us, for a place, uh, he gives us a place of service anyway uh, for our own blessing. The idea that we're indispensable to God is a ridiculous thought. So, uh, then the enmity of pride against me. Pride is always opposed to God. Pride is against God. Satan's great problem, what was it? Pride, and it turned him against God. I will be like the Most High. So, what, quest, what, what drastic action? do you take in your life to make sure that pride is not a part of it? Here's a drastic action Gideon had to take, cut down his army, big time, to keep pride from coming in. I, I, I contend tonight that there are things that we ought to do in our life to put in place to examine ourselves that we are not overtaken in pride as well. All right, let's look at the program for the reduction here. How did he do it? God didn't, or Gideon did not wonder long how he was going to do it because as soon as God told him why the army needed to be reduced, he also told him how it was to be done. Now here's where it gets very interesting because God takes him from the odds of 4 to 1, then he takes him to 13 to 1, and then finally the odds are 450 to 1. Because, uh, by the way, it's interesting because it, cutting that down... It could be very easy. Uh, everyone who's left-handed, you stay. Everyone who's right-handed, go 6%, give or take, a little bit. But, but the statistics are 6% of any population is left-handed. So that, was, that would give you about 1,900 soldiers. And then you could you know, go with redheads or you can do uh, anybody uh, under 5'7 and under because you know that's the perfect height, 5'7. Uh, or whatever you wanted to do. It would be very easy to cut this army down but that's not what God did. Uh, there were some tests given to these soldiers to thin the ranks uh, to the few that God could use. And it's interesting, the tests that were given, and I want to look at them very quickly here. Remember that God wanted a very specific group of people. He's already promised victory. Victory is assured. Now he wants a specific group of people uh, to win this victory. 
And according to, if my math is correct, 99.0625% of Gideon's army needed to go. Now think about that. 99% of your army had to go home before God's going to win the victory with what you have left of your already inferior army. Uh, he chose some specific eliminators. He chose first the test of dread or fear. Uh, he says in verse 3, Go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return. Now, this was an a very effective test because their return to the people 20 and 2,000. So they had 32,000, and 22,000 got up and went home. They went back to the house, leaving 10,000 to fight with Gideon. Man, he's out there <laughs> looking at that crowd. Can you imagine uh, how your stomach would sink? Now you've got to take on this group of 135, uh, uh, an army 135,000 strong, and you've got this puny-looking group here. He was, uh, but God was uh, preventing pride not only was he preventing pride by reducing Gideon's army, but he was also strengthening it by allowing it not to be crippled by fear. Fear spreads like wildfire. Earlier, God had told Moses kind of the same thing in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go and return to his house. And then he says, why? Lest his brethren's heart faint as well. Uh, with 20,000 fearful men, that could have paralyzed Gideon's army. Fear is contagious, and in an undisciplined army like Gideon had here, panic could spread swiftly, and God's eliminating the fear from this army. The same thing, I think, can be true or found in our churches today among Christians. We often see progress limited by timid souls with no faith. And I'm not only talking about progress of a church, but in our own personal Christian lives. We're fearful. One preacher put it this way, are there not many in our day who see the path of conflict and have not the courage to take it? We fear persecution. We fear scorn. We fear what the world will say. Then, alas, we are not ready for God to use and must stand aside. Too many Christians are ready to follow God as long as it's comfortable, as long as it's easy, but the minute danger stares them in the face, they'll slink away in fear. This is not a good soldier of the cross. And... God here eliminated the fearful uh, from the ranks of Gideon's army. I firmly believe, as in the day of Gideon here, such people are best to be dismissed from the work of God, from the ranks, because the cause of Christ is better without them, even if the numbers are reduced. And that's what God makes clear in this army. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, Keep your fears to yourself. Share your courage with others. Let me ask you tonight, does fear hold you in bondage in your Christian life? Fear of the future, fear of uncertainty, fear of death, fear of circumstances. The best way to reduce our fears is to redirect our fears because the Bible does not tell us to live in absence of fear. By the way, fear is a quite natural thing. We're just not supposed to live in obedience to it. But we should fear, but we fear the right thing. So we ought to redirect, redirect our fear. Wisest man that ever lived wrote down some of the lessons of his life for us to read in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us there in six words the secret to our life, or you could say the focus of our life. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear 
God, he tells us, he admonishes us here to fear. Now, when we think of fear, we think of it as a purely negative thing. Because who of us likes to fear? None of us wants to fear. But we are told here to fear God. It's not always a negative thing. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare. We ought to not fear man. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Fear can be an ally. can be if we direct it correctly. If we fear the right thing. I am deathly afraid of snakes. Deathly afraid of snakes. I don't care if they're this big. I don't care if they're garter snakes, little colorful. I hate them. In fact, if a, if a night crawler, when I go fishing, is too big, it makes me queasy. I don't like snakes. I remember when I was about 12 years old, we had a river behind our house on our farm, and we would go swim in that nasty, disgusting river. And uh, it, one of the things you had to worry about in Missouri was water moccasins. And you had to watch for them things. They were nasty, nasty snakes. Well, I, there was an old log that was by the edge of the river had fallen down, and we would dive off this log and into the river. I dove in, I came up, and I looked over after I shook the water from my eyes, and here, about an arm's reach away, was a snake swimming. I don't know to this day whether it was a water moccasin or a harmless water snake or what it was, but I do know I was the third person to ever walk on water. Believe it or not, I walked on water because... I moved like you wouldn't think it would be possible to move uh, to get away from that thing. But what is the fear of a snake will keep you safe from the snake most times if you have a proper fear of it. And that, in my humble opinion, is a good fear. In the Bible, we're told to fear. But we're told who to fear and who not to fear. The fear of man bringeth the snare. We're not to fear man. But we are to fear God. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Psalm 34, 9, oh, fear the Lord, uh, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. We ought to fear. We just make sure we fear the right thing. The first test to Gideon and his men, dread, fear. If you fear had to take out the ones who were filled with fear. And then the second uh, was the test of drinking. Look at the uh, unique here but effective test. 22,000 armies, uh, uh, part of the army are, le are left in fear. Now God comes to Gideon as he's walking depressed, looking at his new ranks that have been thinned out, and uh, he probably can't believe how many left. I mean, I thought if I lost half of them, it would be bad enough, but I've lost 22,000, which leaves me only 10. I've, I've lost two-thirds of my army, and what am I going to do? And God comes to Gideon again and said, Gideon, you still have too many. <laughs> oh, man. About this time, I would say, you know, I, I'd rather not hear from the Lord again. I mean, just being honest in our flesh. Now we're down to 13 to 1, and God said it's still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will try them for thee there. Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down on his knees to drink. The way the soldiers drank water is the final test here that he used to thin the ranks. Now, this test almost depleted the whole army. Only 300 left after the test, verse 6. Now, again, as we said, the primary reason to, to cut down the army was to stop pride, but in so doing, the Lord eliminated a couple other problems. We already looked at fear. He got rid of the fearful heart, the faint-hearted. Well, what's this drinking test all about? 
This eliminated the ones who were careless, the ones who lacked attentiveness. And here's an important one. It eliminated those who gave themselves too freely to fulfilling the appetites of the flesh. I believe God is literally purifying this army with his test. Notice in verse 4, he says, I will try them. That word try means to smelt, to refine. It's the same word used in Psalm 26.2. Examine me, O Lord, prove me, try me. Try my reins and my heart. So that's what God said he's going to do. Look at these two styles. They're the first method that we're talking about to give you a picture is for them to reach down their hands, to cup water in their hands and bring it up. And the Bible calls it lapping like a dog. So they're lifting down, they're lifting water up, and they're drinking like that. The other method was for them to actually get down on their knees, stick their face in the water, and basically suck the water directly uh, in, into their lips and uh, drink that way. So you can imagine that one method allows for the drinker to be conscious of what's going on around him. That was the, the point that we see there. And the other method, you are just at the mercy of whoever walks up on you because your face is buried in the water. You see the difference? Now, the soldiers here were not far from the Midianites when they were drinking this water. Their God, their guard. So good soldiering was more important than quenching their thirst. The other 9,700 threw caution into the wind and gave themselves totally to drinking, totally to what they wanted to do at that moment. Now, there's several lessons we can be, uh, that can be learned here. The requirement of a good soldier. Edward Mason says, among all the qualities needed in a soldier of Jesus Christ, none perhaps is more important than a certain command of oneself. We should never allow physical appetites legitimate or not, to cause us to let down our spiritual guard. We just talked about that in the prayer challenge. We have an enemy. He's cruising to bruise us. He wants to destroy us. We need to not let down our guard spiritually. Giving in to the appetites of the flesh will destroy the best of men. James Smith, we are not fit for the work of God if our own personal comfort is our chief concern. Now, there's nothing wrong Personal comfort. We all like comfort. Amen? I mean, all of us are a fan of comfort. We are, I think, way over comfortable in our society today. Uh, in our vehicles, I can't, it's unimaginable how, I mean, I was raised on a topless buggy, no heat, and we would be in the elements traveling by horse slowly wherever we were going. My dad uh, built a little box for us in the back so when we were kids were little, we would uh, go into that. I, I traveled everywhere in a coffin, basically. I would just travel everywhere in a coffin. And, uh, but they would be out and exposed to the elements. Now, man, vehicles with heat, and with climate control, and heated seats. And, and uh, we, we love our comfort. Nothing wrong with comfort per se, but comfort can be a destroyer of our duty. We, we like our comfort zone. We don't like to step outside of our comfort zone. I hung this sign in my office today because I saw it, and I think this is so good. Great things never come from comfort zones. Think about that. You do anything great, even financially, in your business, for your life, uh, you do anything great in life, it's not going to come out of a comfort zone. It takes people stepping out of that. And we're not going to do anything great for God in our comfort zone. That, that's one job of a preacher, I believe, to comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable. 
one of our jobs as a church. It's very evident today, and I, I don't say this gleefully, but I think it's true, that most Christians today probably belong in that 9700 group, if we're honest with ourselves. And I ask you tonight, the, the question I want to leave you as we close out this evening in a moment is, which group would you be in? Would you be in the 9,700, the vast majority, or the 300? Many Christians, I believe, would be in the 9,700. Like the world around them, they have no higher goal than to satisfy their fleshly appetites. Fleshly appetites are given very high priority. Spiritual necessity, a very low priority. All you got to do is look around on a Wednesday night, Sunday night at church. I know there's people that would be here if they could, but there's also a lot here that could be here but aren't. See what I'm saying? We put a high priority on, on our, our, our fleshly appetites. We put a very low priority on spiritual necessity in our life. What happens is that we make a career of what should only be a pastime. Recreation has, will become a mission in our life. Pleasure-seeking is given priority over spiritual pursuits. It's, all, it's rampant in our Christianity today. Oh, don't get caught up in the pursuit of the things of the flesh. It will cost you much as far as your service to God. What it will do is it will disqualify you in God's army. It will put you in the 9700, not the 300. Don't let the flesh decide the direction that you live your life. We see then the requirement of a good soldier. Secondly, the revelation of character. Uh, you see here, important character traits are often revealed in trivial matters. Can I say that again? Important character traits are often revealed in trivial matters. Luke 16.10, Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Little actions betray your character. You ever spent time with somebody that you thought was one way and after you spend a little time with them, you see they're not quite the person you thought they were? Why? Because little things, little actions betray a character. We ought to discipline even the trivial areas of our life and, if, and have the character that will please God in everything that we do. Like a, a rope. If you've ever seen a rope made up of many, many small strands. Well, if the small strands are defective, then the rope's defective. And even in those small areas of our life, let's keep that uh, pleasing to the Lord. Uh, if small areas of our character are flawed, then large areas will be as well. Now, we close in the promise. I'll just do a minute here. When there are only 300 left, God's satisfied. I can see Gideon shaking his head at this ragtag group of people he's got left. And God said in verse 7, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. What a great promise. Now, the promise, the timing of the promise was great because uh, Gideon, this, by the way, didn't come until after uh, the army was reduced. Before Gideon was, don't miss this now, before Gideon was given a great promise, he first had to demonstrate great obedience. You want to get great promises from God? Obey Him. Amen? Obey God, and you'll get those promises as well. Obedience secured the promises. But obedience is not always easy. Sometimes it tests our faith like it did for Gideon here. Sometimes it seems that if we obey God, it's leading us to defeat instead of victory. But God knows what he's doing. Just obey. When, God, or when Gideon saw his army dwindle down, you can imagine that he uh, would easily be discouraged. But he obeyed by faith, not by sight. That's important. We need to do that.
wasn't only a great promise in the timing, but also the teaching. The promise says clearly here that quality is more important than quantity. We should remember this when it, even when it comes to having people in church. Quantity is not as important as quality. Uh, I think that a lot of churches today, especially in the television era, put a lot of emphasis on quantity of people and not on quality. One uh, preacher said this, better far the little company tried and tested by God himself than the large and respectable body which commands the respect in the eyes of the world. We want to please God, not the world, amen? And so praise God for those that, uh, those that will be here, but quality is what we're after. You know, I've, it's, it's something that I've, uh, be, because of being in business for years, I'm a, I've always been a very much a numbers guy, so I like numbers. I like to, I, for my own personal, personal joy or whatever, I, I keep graphs of our church growth and different things like that. I like numbers. I like to, it's just how I'm wired. But I also have to remember that spiritual growth is just as important as numerical growth. Amen? We want to see people growing spiritually. And sometimes numerical growth might stay the same for a long time and we see spiritual growth. And that's okay. That's okay. We need to see quality as well as quantity. God is not impressed by numbers. We saw that just uh, with Gideon here. He's not impressed by Gideon's 32,000. He whittled it down to 300 people and said, by this I will gain the victory. If God was, when God was about to do a great work, he had to trim down the force. And again, my question to you tonight, which group would you be in? Maybe you'd have been in the first group, fearful. Oh, no way. I'm taking on an army of 135,000 with just 32,000. I'm out of here. Fearful. Abandoning the work. Not only is that a problem with being fearful, but a problem with lack of loyalty, leaving your, other, your friends and compadres in the battle, and you're going to go home. Fearful. A lot of people are fearful. Or maybe you'd have been out on the second group. More concerned about appealing the flesh than we are about guarding our hearts, guarding our souls against those that might hurt us. And then uh, I pray that you would be part of the 300. I pray I would be part of the 300. You know, I, I, we look at this sometimes. We, oh, if I'd been there. Well, we are there, really. We are living it. <laughs> we all have the same opportunities. We have the same uh, we can do the same thing these soldiers did in our life. We can deny our flesh. We can uh, be fearful of God only, not fearful of man. We are there. Let's be in the right group. Amen?